Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Many tribes are taking advantage of the economic development opportunities for solar, wind, and other clean energy projects. The federal government offers a number of incentives. Now the Biden administration is stepping up its supportive projects and specifically reaching out to tribes to take on green energy enterprises. And tribal advocates see it as a way to provide a sustainable, local source of power for their people. We'll hear about the benefits and drawbacks of tribal green energy projects coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is working with tribes on preparedness efforts as Florida braces for Hurricane Ian. Lars Krutak is FEMA's National Tribal Advisor at the National Response Coordination Center. He says they're in close contact with the Seminole Tribe, the Miccosukee Tribe, and the Porch Band of Creek Indians in Alabama. We continue to message that all tribal members ensure they have an emergency plan in place and to check in on neighbors to see if they need assistance. People with access and functional needs, including older adults, may need extra assistance to prepare for the storm. For people with disabilities and their families, it is important to consider their circumstances and their special needs to effectively prepare. FEMA has supplies and personnel ready in different locations in Florida and Alabama to get help where it's needed as soon as possible, including with water, meals, and cots. The agency is encouraging people in evacuation zones to have a plan for their families and pets and be ready to evacuate. FEMA's tribal coordination includes working with the Interior Department, the Indian Health Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the American Red Cross. As of Wednesday morning, the National Weather Service warning showed Hurricane Ian was approaching the west coast of Florida. The life-threatening storm is likely to have devastating wind damage, flooding, and tornadoes are possible in central and south Florida. A tribal college in Wisconsin is highlighting a milestone and efforts to improve student success. Mike Moen has more. This fall, the College of Menominee Nation kicked off a year-long celebration as it observes its 30th anniversary. School president Christopher Caldwell says it's important to display how much of an asset the campus is to the community. He says part of that plays out in welcoming indigenous students who didn't have a good experience in trying out a mainstream college or university. And so they come back home, they might not have their degree or they they come back with debt. Caldwell says schools like his closely work with these students and he hopes their welcoming environment rubs off on mainstream campuses. He says places like CMN are also important because they can educate the community about a local tribe's history. This year's celebration coincides with the 50th anniversary of the Menominee Restoration Act of 1973. That policy reversed an earlier decision by Congress to terminate Menominee status as a federally recognized tribe. Caldwell says it's an important story to keep telling. We really, as an academic institution, represent the intent of that act and all of the efforts of what our tribal nations look to do, which is to um, assert their sovereignty, their self-determination. And he says they're working to revitalize traditional aspects of the Menominee language and culture. That coincides with similar efforts around the country to prevent indigenous languages from going extinct. Caldwell says it's a key example of the role an institution like his can play and something other colleges can learn from. That was Mike Moen reporting. 
The Alaska Federation of Natives picked Congresswoman Mary Peltola as its keynote speaker for the organization's annual convention this year. The AFN, the state's largest native organization, announced on Tuesday the representative will speak at the event next month. Peltola won a special election, becoming the first Alaska native and first woman to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives for Alaska. AFN President Julie Kitka says history was made this fall with her win and the AFN wants to continue to celebrate. Peltola will serve the remainder of the late Congressman Don Young's term. She'll have to win again in November to keep the seat. The convention will take place in person in Anchorage. The past two conventions were virtual due to COVID-19. The event draws thousands of people from across the state, focusing on policy and advocacy statements. There are also cultural performances, exhibits, and an art market. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ameren, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Ameren.com. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The federal government is increasing the incentives for tribes to get into or expand clean energy initiatives. They include money in the recent Inflation Reduction Act, where $235 million is earmarked for tribal climate programs, $225 million for tribal high-efficiency electric home rebate programs, and $75 million for energy loan programs. There's another $25 million specifically for Native Hawaiian climate initiatives. Even before the recent influx of money, there were a growing number of tribes taking on clean energy projects. Today on our show, we'll speak with people working with tribes to implement clean energy. We also want to hear from you. Is your tribe making a shift over to clean energy? If so, have you faced any problems? Do you think clean energy is the solution for your community's current power needs? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Or you can post on our social media pages. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to first welcome Daniel Wiggins, Jr. He's the Air Quality Technician with the Bad River Band Natural Resources Department. He's a Bad River Band citizen. Daniel, welcome to Native America Calling. Oh, thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Daniel, three years ago, Bad River was awarded a Department of Energy grant to develop a solar microgrid. What's the purpose of this project? Um, purpose of the project was in, really in response to uh, climate change. In 2016, we experienced a 500-year flood, and that flood event uh, caused some drastic damage, but also identified a lot of gaps within our utility infrastructure, uh, including electrical, gas, um, and water. And so looking back at that event, we kind of had to go back and say, you know, how can we address some of these gaps and make sure that our buildings that we need during these 
these events are still, you know, up and running and available. And really that's kind of what triggered a lot of the planning that went into the development of projects like this, um, meaning, you know, the three microgrids that we installed at three tribal buildings. So the idea here is to have this backup solar microgrid in case your main power goes down with some of these facilities there with the band? Yeah, right on, right, right on. And then we've identified critical infrastructure where that, you know, one of the infrastructure supports even, you know, additional infrastructure. So we have uh, our clinic um, is now backed up 100% by a microgrid, 200 kilowatts of, or 300 kilowatts of solar with 250 kilowatts of uh, battery storage. But then we also have our wastewater treatment facility is now backed up by a microgrid as well. And everybody knows we all need water um, and we all need to flush our toilets. So um, those, those are just some of the things you appreciate until you have like an event such as that in 2016. So we kind of looked at it and took it at from a resiliency approach and made sure that, yes, when these outages do happen, these buildings are up and running and fully capable of supporting the community. Again, not just with the electrical, but make sure that, you know, the buildings have water, running water to it. This sounds like a really forward-thinking project. Uh, since you got the grant in 2019, how long did it take to, to get everything planned and, and, and contracted out and, and get this microgrid up and running? You know, when we got the money, you know, just, just to get the money, it's never an overnight thing. We did a lot of planning going into the grant, so we did a lot of strategic energy planning, a lot of uh, emergency preparedness planning, and really that triggered getting the funding. Um, and then you're right again, once you get the funding, you know, what does it take? It takes all hands on deck. And so we worked with uh, the contractors um, in 2019. We we brought on contractors that did the final designs and were able to do a quick install through COVID because one of the things that we kind of didn't highlight in the immediate things is when we got the money, the next year COVID hit and basically shut down the entire world. And so with that, um, me and the contractor had deep conversations about what should we do next. And, you know, remembering that this project was built on resiliency and the ability to respond to, you know, major events. I think COVID was one of those major events where we said, hey, you know, instead of stopping the project, let's push this through and make sure that we get it done because we don't know if COVID is going to go away. And so we had all hands on deck. All the tribal staff were supportive. The contractor was supportive. Uh, DOE was very supportive and happy that we were pushing the project through. I'd say we got pretty good feedback. We were able to install and commission the project in 2021, May of 2021. Daniel, so I'm interested in knowing how, like how efficient is the microgrid. So, like, let's say at this clinic, uh, your main power goes out. How long can that clinic remain operational? just running strictly off the, the microgrid and these battery sources that you have? Uh, I don't know, but it's a good I don't know, meaning that for the clinic specifically, we think it can go indefinitely. We think we could cut the utility off and that clinic would be supported by the microgrid for when it, for however long it needs. Um, it has a very steady load, meaning it, it doesn't go up and down. There's no major pumps or no major spikes within its load profile. And so it was really easy to address with, a, I don't want to say a simple system, but it was addressed with uh, the sizing of the system. And the, the clinic is by far the most resilient of all three microgrids. Um, the wastewater treatment plant, uh, they have a lot of pumps. They have a lot of stuff, a lot of action going on over there. And so we're, we're estimating that that microgrid, if the utilities went out, probably about three days. 
So the the clinic uh, is um, a little more efficient then in terms of its power needs than than the the treatment plan. It sounds like Daniel. Um, is there an economic development component to it? I mean, can the band make money off of this microgrid? Absolutely. You know, I think that's one of the cool things with the solar and uh, storage projects these days is, you know, on the backside of resiliency, because we got to remember what this project was built on. It was built on resiliency first, and then we kind of benefited from, you know, having solar and batteries at these facilities. And they do offset energy while they're not in emergency mode, we'll say. So when the utility is not down and they're not in emergency mode supporting the entire building, they are able to uh, simply offset the energy load and energy building load. So we're, we're saving dollars um, out of all of the other times that it's not in emergency mode. Now, has the microgrid also provided job opportunities for, for uh, band citizens? Absolutely. Uh, a project of this size just brings awareness into the community and brings contractors into the area that you're working in. So that's one of the benefits with just saying, hey, we got contractors are present here, starting to look to do work. Uh, but specifically with the microgrid project, the contractors we brought on, they have specific technical training programs uh, that tribal members can take advantage of. And then uh, they also have uh, very straightforward job tracks where they can get into straightforward, um, I mean, not straightforward, but um, specific technician positions working with our microgrids and other microgrids in northern Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. Daniel, this all sounds really, really exciting, really interesting. Thanks for sharing this with us. And um, we've got some other guests on the show today, so we're going to keep the conversation moving. And, Daniel, I know you need to leave uh, at about the 25-minute mark, so we're going to be mindful of your time. Folks, if you've got a question, if you'd like to learn more about some of these clean energy projects we're talking about today, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest is joining us from Molokai, Hawaii. Liliana Napoleon. She is a program director for Oahu Energy Cooperative. She is Native Hawaiian and a Cherokee descendant. Liliana, welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, good morning. Yes, um, thank you for having me on the call. Absolutely. Well, tell us more about the Energy Co-op. When was it created? Sure. So the Energy Co-op, it's made up of volunteer uh, community members. Um, who each have a, a board position, and they've been in the the building and the making phase for at least the past three to five years, and um, a lot of that energy um, and really you know forward vision movement um, was in specific to that that similar word that it seems like everybody's using um, in in this day and time of resiliency, and so for them they they also seen that the island um, was stricken. Uh, by the high cost of electricity, uh, but also accessibility to electricity. So the island has a high count of Native Hawaiians, uh, which also means um, access to Hawaiian homelands, which are uh, government-controlled at this point, uh, but it was set up during the Hawaiian Homestead Act, uh, which allows a Native Hawaiian who has a quantum um, of 50% or more uh, to be able to uh, attain a lease and cultivate there, uh, live, thrive, and really have a permanent uh, place of housing. Uh, so with, with the group, uh, they were able to connect with the utility company here in Hawaii, uh, who is Hawaiian Electric, and they have a subsidiary called Maui Electric. And together, uh, both entities were able to motion into a planning phase 
of what they call the CBRE, so Community-Based Renewable Energy. And just recently, uh, the cooperative has had some ongoing meetings uh, with with the electric company, and it sounds like they want to work together, you know, to see how we can do this cohesively um, to ensure that those that are on the grid um, and those that may be off the grid, there's balance in between. Uh, so the co-op has been working on that for quite some time. I recently came on board back in January, and uh, one of my roles was, was more in specific to building our workforce on the island. So here we have this brand new industry, and it was definitely um, you know, a pathway and a topic area that we weren't necessarily taught in school. Uh, the community college here, they did offer you know, PV courses here and there, uh, but there was a lot of different types of prerequisites as well as um, checkpoints you know, in, in which our residents would need to um, comply with It'd be, you know, in, in order for them to enroll. So with Oahu, we were able to really bring down those barriers, and that in turn allowed us to attract those um, that were of Native Hawaiian um, ancestry, 100% Molokai residents, majority of them are unemployed, and a good portion are actually residents of the Hawaiian homestead lands. Okay. In which uh, those in the yeah yeah Liliana so, we're we're gonna have to take a break here it's just about that time but I, I know it's pretty early there in Hawaii I think I just heard a, a couple of roosters crow there in the background so <laughs> we're gonna chat more with Liliana here right after our break folks get in on this discussion one eight hundred nine nine six two eight four eight stay with us we'll be right back. If you're a football fan, you're already counting your team's wins and losses. The sport has a large native following from high school and rec leagues all the way up to the NFL. We'll look back on the native influence on football through history and what the appeal is for native sports fans today. That's on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about tribes developing clean energy alternatives. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Is your tribe using wind, solar, hydro, or some other renewable energy source? Join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848. You can also continue the conversation on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Our Twitter handle is 180099native. And we are speaking with Liliana Napoleon. She's a program director for Oahu Energy Cooperative. And Liliana, before the break, you gave us a, a wonderful overview of the co-op and uh, the motivation for starting the co-op. And I want to ask you there uh, amongst community members, are they excited? Are they looking forward to the opportunities that the co-op will offer? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say for, for the community members, a lot of this with renewable energy being a new thing, you know, uh, most of us were very comfortable with uh, getting our electric from the grid. So it's really a learning experience through the process. 
and figuring out kind of where everyone's competency is at um, so that we can deliver the information on what's the plan ahead, what's currently being offered by the co-op uh, so that our residents can take full advantage. So we do have monthly community meetings. And then of course we have our ongoing um, dialogue and forums uh, with, with the community in which they can engage with us. And, you know, we really believe in that concept of uh, one community member at a time and building the relationship and the rapport. And of course that trust overall, you know, eventually will be, going on to their, their places of residency and, and their homes and really connecting with their families. So we want to build that relationship early on. And are there job opportunities for Native Hawaiians there at the co-op? Absolutely. So in specific to the co-op, we are actually in partnership with other um, subsidiary uh, renewable energy companies that are already in establishment. Uh, but we're also we also have an, a, a component for residents who come through our training uh, program. May it be our clean energy technician or our microgrid training. We do provide transitional services, uh, which overlap into entrepreneurship. So helping to explore, helping them to explore uh, what that need is, you know, and aligning it with their overall um, sort of morals and vision, and and building out that particular industry. Have you encountered any uh, any challenges or setbacks so far? I would say, you know, in terms of the in terms of the challenges, um, of course, monetary is always an ongoing challenge, you know, and making sure that that timing is correct. Uh, right now, we're sort of just piecemealing it together. So, you know, miniature grants at a time and doing what we can with it, uh, but always trying to seek for a higher source to, to assist in that area so that we can start to really streamline things. Mm. Well, this sounds really, really fascinating, folks. If you want to get in on this discussion, 1-800-996-2848. Let us know about energy, renewable energy, clean energy projects, or initiatives that are going on in your community. We'd love to hear about them. Uh, right now, we're chatting with Liliana Napoleon, and she is uh, in... Molokai, Hawaii, and she's the program director for Oahu Energy Cooperative. So, Liliana, tell us a little bit more of, about um, how this will work in terms of, uh, so folks will just transfer the their power needs from the current provider there in Hawaii, and they'll switch over to the co-op? Is that how it's going to work? Very good question. So we're, we're actually taking it, we're starting off with a very priority need, um, and that in specific being those that are off of the grid, not by choice, um, but because the utility um, isn't providing electric, you know, in, in those very remote outskirt areas. And a good portion of those uh, individuals, as I was expressing, are on uh, Native Hawaiian homestead lands. Uh, many are in their age, uh, non-ambulatory, you know, chronic illnesses. So we're starting there with the acute. And then through that process, we're kind of blending um, the cooperative with our subsidiary, uh, which is Oahu Rising. And together, uh, we want to be able to kind of help those folks initially, but at the same time work with the utility company uh, to figure out how we can create that balance. So it'll provide our residents with an option. You know, if they want to remain with, with HECO, they're able to, um, as infrastructure starts to, starts to come um, and creating that balance be, be, between two entities, if they'd like to um, take, take advantage of the subscription and, and the savings on the cooperative side, they'll, they'll have that option. Liliana, do a significant percentage of Native Hawaiians live off-grid? 
A good portion, yes. And when I say off-grid, I'm speaking to gasoline generators. So like your typical gasoline generator that you would buy at an Ace Hardware store is how they're they're surviving. You know, plugging in their cell phones, their uh, refrigerators for for the medicine, you know, for, for their baby's milk. I mean, it's it's really a, a third world uh, view and, and a lot of um, suppression uh, to it. So we really want to start there, especially for the clean energy initiatives, you know, with all of that um, toxins kind of going into the air from the generators. We, we wanted to help one family at a time. So we do have a campaign going. Um, it's, we're going to try to start off with 50, so 50 nanogrid systems uh, to help those that are living off a generator on the homestead who do not have connection to HECO. Um, not by choice, but because they don't have access to the grid. Um, it's not connected to their lots to help them to replace it. And then, of course, providing the education, you know, the awareness, um, providing that empowerment for where just possibility the family may want to venture into the actual training and education side um, in which Oahu provides. For a Native Hawaiian family currently off-grid, so they're, they're living, they're, they're using a gas generator to power their home, will they see a dramatic savings in their energy costs uh, when the co-op comes in and they don't have to use a generator? Absolutely. So currently, gas prices here on Molokai, they're about 6 plus and climbing by the week. So these folks are spending anywhere on the low end, about 500 and it can go up to a thousand. We we've seen as, as high as a thousand for for a family compound, you know, and a good portion. And I'm sorry, of that's monthly. Lilian, that's yeah, five hundred thousand dollars monthly. Okay. Yes, yes, once once a month to fill wow. these generators, you know, and they're they're only running for about six six hours max, and then they have to rest, right? <laughs> and then they restart it up all over again. Yeah, so how much do you think those costs? Twenty four seven. Yeah, they just cycle through. So how mm-hmm. much do you think uh, the savings will be uh, when they're able to switch over to the co-op then monthly? Oh, gosh, I'd say at least in half, you know, they'll, they'll be saving at least 250 to $300 a month, maybe even more. And that money now can go towards their other hierarchy of needs. You know, may that be food, may that be to pay their medication, um, to, to establish credit, build capacity. All of those different aspects in which they they're they're without currently, they're just living to survive. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Liliana, I want to be mindful of your time as well because I know uh, you've got a busy day ahead of you. And uh, good morning, a very good morning there in Hawaii. And thank you again for for uh, greeting the sunrise and uh, and coming on our show and sharing this really exciting uh, energy co-op uh, plan you folks are working on. And best of luck going forward, Liliana. Thank you. I appreciate that. You folks, you have a great day. And I look forward to any questions, you know, or any dialogue that that may come our way from the audience. You got it, Liliana. Thank you. Folks, if you want to get in on our discussion, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that phone number is 1-800-996-2848. Let us know your thoughts on clean energy initiatives in Native American communities. Our next guest is joining us now from St. Paul, Minnesota, Robert Blake. He is an owner of Solar Bear, Executive Director for Native Sun Community Power Development and the Chief Executive Officer for Indigenized Energy Initiative. He's a tribal citizen of the Red Lake Nation. Bob, thanks for joining us. Hey, Ani Buju, everyone. Uh, Miigwech, Sean, for having me. 
Big Witch for joining us, Bob. And you're involved in a solar energy farm in Red Lake with funding from the Inflation Reduction Act. How big is this project? Uh, this project is going to be between 300 and 400 megawatts of solar that we'll be installing uh, just north of the Red Lake Inner Reservation in northern Minnesota. So, Bob, help us out here, and especially myself, because I, I am not an energy expert, 300 to 400 megawatts. Like, can you put that in, in, in terms of, like, what does that mean? How much, how much energy is that? What can that power? Well, I mean, if you think about the state of Minnesota and how much solar we have installed uh, currently right now, we have probably about uh, over a gigawatt of solar. So, um, you know, we're probably putting half of that solar up in Red Lake. So half of what's installed in the state of Minnesota is probably what uh, we're going to be installing um, in Red and uh, just off the Red Lake Reservation. So this is huge, then. I mean, this is this is a farm that could potentially power half of the state of Minnesota. Uh, yeah, that's possible. Um, we we are the only tribal nation um, in the in the uh, um, in the country uh, with the Tribal Energy Development Organization moniker. Um, so, uh, we have the Tito status, uh, so out of all 574, we have a tribal energy development organization status. Um, and so we plan on using that to, uh, to go ahead and export some energy and also take care of the needs, um, of our own community, um, and, and, uh, moving away from fossil fuels. So what's the, the first priority? Is it to provide power there, uh, within the community or is it to, to, um, to sell some of this energy to other interests there in the state? It's always been a priority to um, provide power to our community, so that's the first priority. Um, second priority is going to be to fulfill the uh, commitments and the uh, partnerships and obligations that we have made with uh, with uh, the Minnesota Department of Transportation um, and other uh, off takers that are going to be uh, buying uh, this this uh, this renewable energy from uh, from from the Red Lake Solar Farm. And where are Red Lake citizens currently getting their power? Uh, they're currently getting their power from Beltrami Co-op, which is, uh, you know, um, basically a cooperative uh, that um, uh, is buying the power from, uh, a, you know, um, a, a bigger uh, provider. And, and um, so uh, currently right now, Red Lake is purchasing the power from them. And, uh, and uh, we hope to change that because uh, we're, we're also creating our own tribal utility, too. So when all this comes about, the utility, the solar energy farm, will tribal citizens be able to, to enjoy lower energy costs, better service, just an overall better power experience than what they're getting now? Absolutely. What we hope to create is, uh, you know, uh, the, the power source that will be able to also create other jobs and economic opportunities within the community. So this is more than just a solar project, right? It's also a project that's going to uh, create, you know, more opportunities for the community to um, venture into. So, you know, you think of data centers, you think of, um, you know, you can think of like a broadband uh, cell phone companies, you know, all these other things are going to come along with it. So um, it doesn't just stop here and this, and this will create jobs for the community. Bob, tell us more uh, about the farm. I mean, you know, what is the actual, you know, the facility itself? What does it look like? What goes into to building a a solar energy farm there at Red Lake. 
Yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, engineering that, that we're currently, that we have been doing. Um, and so it's just basically looking at the soil samples, um, making sure that the irradiance is, is right for the project. Um, so, you know, um, there's a lot of engineering that happens. So there's a lot of pre-construction was what we would probably call it um, that goes into these projects. I think a couple of your other callers talked about it. Um, so before that, this even starts, there's a lot of work that has been done. And um, actually, this probably started back in 2015, I believe. Um, so it's, it's taking quite a long time for us to get to this point. But, um, you know, because of, like you said, the IRA Act, I mean, um, and uh, the, uh, the loan program with the Department of Energy, um, you know, that this is uh, going to become reality now for, for the people of the Red Lake Nation. Well, I wanted to ask that. I mean, would this pos would this project have been possible without the federal funding? Negative. This would not have been possible without the federal funding. Um, and it's because of the of the pro it's because of the Department of Energy's uh, loan program office uh, run by Jigger Shaw that uh, you know that this is that this is even possible now. So um, I encourage all tribal nations that if you were going to um, think about building are uh, looking into uh, creating microgrids. Uh, one of your callers was talking about the microgrid in, micro in Bad River um, or your own community solar project. Uh, I believe that's down in uh, Hawaii. Um, that, uh, you know, this is definitely the time to do it. Well, Bob, from a, from an engineering standpoint, I mean, it, this is just um, really fascinating, you know, this, this huge, huge power source there, this energy farm. And um, is that challenging? I mean, what are some of the the issues and some of the problems that need to be worked through in order to create uh, solar energy at this magnitude? Well, you gotta you gotta have uh, you gotta have an op taker, and you gotta be able to put the the power on the lines, right? So, um, what happened uh, about three years ago? Uh, Minnesota Power uh, had to run a uh, two forty uh, kV line down from um, Alberta, Canada, carrying hydro power into Duluth, Minnesota, and they were going to have to reroute that power line around our community because it was going to run through our, run through our lands, our tribal seated territory lands. And um, they basically asked us, hey, um, can we run this line through, through your guys' territory? Um, and so we said yes, and, um, but, you know, you were going to, you're going to owe us a favor, so let's work together here. And so um, they ended up running their line through, and um, that's basically going to carry our renewable energy to the market. So um, it's just basically luck, and uh, it was a corporation that put up a lot of money to carry the, the renewable energy on the power lines. And, um, and uh, here, we, here we are now, now ready to, um, to, to, to build. So this critical infrastructure that you need to transport this power, uh, <laughs> you have a favor to thank for that, huh? Yes, we do. We really do. But uh, but we saved them a lot of money, though. So Red Lake saved them millions and millions of dollars uh, because they were going to have to run that power line around our, our territory. So, um, you know, so I, I would look at it as like uh, maybe one 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 person scratching the other person's back. Right. So that's exactly what happened in that situation. And, um, you know, we, we have these aspirations uh, and have been talking about this for a long time. And so, you know, I. And, and one thing that I always tell tribal nations is, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're in the casino game, which is a billion-dollar industry, um, but we need to be in the energy game. And this is a trillion-dollar industry. And, uh, and I'll say that we are in the wrong game. we got to get into the, into the energy game. So because of technology and the advances of, of uh, solar and battery storage and, and, and you name it, 
um, that this is all being uh, made possible to uh, create our own uh, distributed energy resources, um, to, to create our own uh, tribal utilities, and, and to uh, create these uh, wonderful projects in, in our community, which, uh, which I believe uh, are, are going to change uh, tribal communities all across the country. We're chatting now with Bob Blake, and he's uh, an owner of Solar Bear and executive director for Native Sun Community Power Development. He's telling us about the solar energy farm there in Red Lake. And he says uh, casinos are a billion-dollar industry. Energy is a trillion-dollar industry, and that's where tribes need to be focusing their efforts. So we're going to chat more with Bob here on the other side of this break. Folks, if you want to give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. You can also call 1-800-99-NATIVE. That'll work, too. Just give us a holler. Let us know what you think of this show, talking about renewable energy, clean energy, different projects in Native America. We'll be right back. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Listening to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking about tribal-led efforts to develop clean energy generation, and there's still time to join this conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. On the line in St. Paul, Minnesota, is Bob Blake, and he's involved with the solar energy farm in Red Lake. And Bob, you got to help me out here as a, as a Pueblo guy from New Mexico. Um, I don't think of northern Minnesota initially as being a, a great place for solar energy, but sounds like I'd be remiss to think that way. Yeah, you uh, you would be, Sean. Um, you know, the interesting thing about this is that, um, you know, before, um, you know, uh, around the world, you know, China got involved with um, with um, with solar. I mean, Germany was the leader. Right. So when you think about Germany's climate, you know, it's pretty much similar to, Min- to Minnesota's and they were the actually solar leader in the world. OK, so. When you think about like how they were able to make advances in renewable energy, um, and and they are and they are doing incredible things over in that country, actually, um, you know, you can see how that can translate over to Minnesota, and um, and actually, solar does work better um, in the cold because, you know, um, you know, it's it's parts, right? It's parts, it's machine parts, and those machine parts get hot, right? So it's just like an engine gets hot, you know, it overheats. Um, it's the same thing with solar and, and inverters and whatnot. So they're they're not burning out as much, um, and and they're working and the equipment is working a lot better. So um, solar does work really well in, in in the cold. Well, thanks for explaining that uh, to this one Pueblo guy, Bob. Really, really interesting to learn more about this project up there in in Red Lake, Minnesota. Folks, we've got another guest on the line. Let's welcome Tungshi Claremont. She is the managing director of the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund. She is assistant Wapton Dakota tribal member and Sikanju Lakota. Tungshi, welcome to Native America Calling. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Well, Tungsi, you're on the grant-making side of clean energy uh, with the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund. Are you seeing increased interest from tribes looking to get into renewable energy? Yeah, we definitely are. Um, the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund has been around since late 2018. Um, and since that point, um, we've you know, had an increased volume of applications that come through our grant uh, program side, um, as well as our leadership development program side. So we're, you know, as, as a grant-making program, we look to serve tribes, um, tribal individuals, and meet them where they are. Um, as we all know, in Indian country, there's always been that concept of sovereignty and the importance of environmental sustainability. Um, and it's really through, you know, stewarding the land and by intergenerational living and teaching. Um, so we really see that as a way to, um, as, you know, community-based solutions for renewable energy. And so when the concept of the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund um, was kind of developed at, at Grid Alternatives, which is a national nonprofit solar company, um, it, it really just made sense just because of the work that has been happening for many, many years. I mean, Grid Alternatives has been serving tribes since 2010 um, through, you know, smaller scale um, solar installations. Um, and since then, we've grown significantly to be able to serve over 60 tribes in the last 12 years or so. Um, but in particular, the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund has provided grants to over 40 tribes. So we do see an increase in um, tribes getting into this space. Um, and it's really exciting that, you know, us as a small grant maker, um, really unique to the grant making space for tribes because we're so particular in serving um, just the tribal solar aspect of renewable energy. Um, it's just exciting to know that, you know, federal agencies and state agencies um, are really looking to meet the needs for tribes. Well, tell us more about these grants. What types of projects have you folks funded? Yeah, so since 2018, um, like I said, we've provided over 40 grants to different tribes, tribal organizations. Um, when I say tribal organizations, those are nonprofits um, that are tribal-led. Also, we've been able to fund a handful of tribal colleges and universities, um, and they all kind of differ in their scope and what their energy plan is for their own communities or their organization or their campus community. Um, and our our grants, um, they go up to 200000 so a little smaller on the smaller side, um, but they do provide significant funding toward um, a facility or a number of residential installations. Um, and just this year, we um, recently awarded 16 um, facility and residential grants. Um, and so we're starting to work with those grantees on their um, 
just kind of getting to know them and what their project is going to, what kind of project their impacts are going to have in their community. Um, but they range, like I said, from um, facilities. So we have, for example, uh, the Boys and Girls Club um, in um, Mayetta, Kansas, received a grant from us, and it's going to be, um, you know, there is gonna, the system is going to be owned by the tribe, um, and they're going to be able to see those savings on this particular facility. Um, we've also funded, you know, different things like a fish hatchery um, in the Spokane Indian tribe. So it just varies. Um, it's really exciting to see just how innovative and how unique a lot of these projects are in our in Indian country. Um, how progressive tribes are becoming when it becomes to uh, renewable energy technologies, not just solar, but wind, hydro, geothermal. We see that a, a lot in different regions, and often, um, you know, we're unable to serve that part of the renewable energy technology, but it's great to see how um, tribes are utilizing um, these different areas to serve their communities, and but also looking at ways how solar can also be incorporated into other technology uses. Okay. And Tungshi, uh, these grants are up to $200,000. So um, in terms of the scope of these projects, um, how big a portion of the budget is, is that? Are they able to, um, do they have to seek outside funding for perhaps through this Inflation Reduction Act, through some of that renewable energy funding or, or other sources? Or are they able to, to make a lot of headway into these projects just with that grant money they get from you folks? Yeah, oftentimes, I mean, our $200,000 will fully fund a project. And so I think that's um, what's unique is that um, we're able to uh, provide up to 200000 and these tribes will often, whether they're new to solar or, you know, they're in maybe a different phase that um, into solar that will, they're going by phases is what I'm trying to get at. Um, our 200000 will often pay, you know, for the full price or full cost of their project that they propose, so they're so then they become full owners. But we do have a grant making program. Um, it's the Gap Funding Grant, um, and for this grant, we provide up to two hundred and fifty thousand toward um, their project, um, and it's called grant or Gap Funding because we're providing that funding to fill the gap, whether they received a. Department of Energy grant or some other, you know, federal or state agency type of um, funding, and they need to make that, they often need to provide a match of, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to 50% of their entire grant. So um, that 250 often gets these projects across the finish line um, by leveraging those other funding opportunities. Well, Tungshi, thanks for joining us today and giving us all this background. This is the Tribal Solar Accelerator Fund, and this is a, a grant program available through the Grid Alternatives nonprofit organization. We've got a, a fifth guest on our show today. Joining us now from Flagstaff, Arizona, is Dr. Suzanne Singer. She is the co-founder of Native Renewables. She is Danae. Suzanne, welcome to the show, and I appreciate you being patient. 
Hi, thanks for having me. It's good to hear everyone else's voices too. Absolutely, Suzanne. And uh, you are a mechanical engineer who left a cushy job with Sandia Labs to become a clean energy entrepreneur. What inspired you to take that plunge? Oh, man, yeah. So I spent several years after Sandia working with Lawrence Livermore National Labs doing different energy projects, including energy analysis. And uh, if you've ever heard of energy flow charts and stanky diagrams, like those are really fun understanding where exactly our energy resources come from, where they go, how efficient they are. Um, but I think one of the catalysts for me taking on Native Renewables and helping co-found it is I spent some time at Sandia National Labs doing a tribal energy program, which I think now is uh, under the Office of Indian Energy, their intern program. Um, but I got to work with like, Sandra Begay, who's at Sandia National Labs, just learning about tribes and the different technologies they were investing in, the different projects they were implementing. So it was really, I think, a starting point for me, realizing that I could use my technical background to support tribal nations and then um, doing good work in my own community. And so I think an opportunity, chance opportunity with the, our other co-founder, who's also a Navajo woman and, you know, really trying to get to the point where we need to form our own organization and solve some of the issues, energy access issues we were seeing. And tens of thousands of our families and relatives don't have grid access to power. So that's a little bit of a long story, but that's sort of how we got, I got started or how I got motivated. It's more about the passion of what I'm interested in. Now, Suzanne, Native Renewables, if I'm not mistaken, you're set up as a nonprofit. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And what was the motivation for creating the nonprofit as opposed to going into a, like a for-profit firm? Yeah, so initially uh, we were under a fiscal sponsor, um, Wahela Johns is the other co-founder, and she had experience in the nonprofit world. Um, so I think part of it was seeing other models of energy services to, um, I think a lot of, there was a lot of solar investment in other countries around the world, especially organizations that were kind of based in the Bay Area, which is where we started. Um, but having, learning from them and those entities, I think that had a driving piece of it. Um, I think currently now, we, and we do think it's time to time, is there a for-profit arm that we think could be beneficial for us? Um, but there are some advantages and disadvantages, obviously, to, to having a nonprofit organization. Um, I think some of the advantages are trying to get better pricing on equipment or donations for equipment, which really helps us bring the cost down, um, especially when we're trying to implement good quality systems, off-grid solar photovoltaic systems for as low a cost as we possibly can. Suzanne, it sounds like the, the technology uh, behind some of these clean energy programs, it, it sounds like it's really improving. It just sounds like it's a lot more efficient. Listening earlier to Bob Blake talk about how they're able to squeeze out so much solar energy in a place like uh, like Minnesota or even earlier what they're doing in Germany. So can you get, kind of tell us a little bit about how much progress has been made with regard to the efficiency and, and just the the overall scope of, of clean energy, just compared to like something maybe 10 years ago, a solar energy project 10 years ago, com compared to what you folks are able to do nowadays? Yeah, um, I'll do my best. I'm a little bit out of the technical world, but 
um, some of the newer advances in, for example, photovoltaic um, modules or panels is the idea of bifacial. So trying to take advantage of the sunshine on both sides of the module, where traditionally it's just on one side. Um, I think from the perspective of increase in energy efficiency, I mean, the holy grail is increasing it to, I would say, like 20% and above, like way higher than 20%. And I think with some of these new advances, we're getting a little bit better, although from material standpoint, trying to learn and implement different types of materials in different ways, um, it's been sort of incremental in, in the past. From I mean, this is just from my technical background because I also worked on technology that had little incremental improvements in efficiencies. Um, but I think other conversations around improving and making solar modules really robust also lead to conversations around recyclability. If you make it more usable or able to last longer in the field, what consequences does that have for making challenges to breaking it down? Um, on terms of, terms of the battery side, I think folks especially in conversations with some people we know at in DOE National Labs, Department of Energy National Labs, is looking at new types of materials for battery technologies. And I think largely their focus is on how do we use materials that are more local and that we don't have to source from other countries from an energy security standpoint. Um, but also I think now on the indigenous side of that conversation is where are these materials being sourced from and do we agree with that where the mining happens so i think these are great conversations that are advancing now and it's exciting to hear more um, but also on the recyclability of batteries as well is another conversation that i'm hearing more and more about um, so i think it's interesting in our work is that even with all of these advances we prefer because we work off-grid harsh environments sometimes, but so we rever, prefer the like more robust established in the field. We know it works for sure because these companies have been doing it for years. So it's kind of interesting, this new advances, but we're still kind of using old technology that's being manufactured still. Well, Suzanne, thanks for joining us today. And it just sounds like tribes are, and native nations are, are uniquely positioned to, to be leaders in the clean energy industry. And I just can't get over uh, what Bob Blake said earlier, a trillion dollar industry. So folks, uh, we are out of time now, but let me thank all of our guests today, Daniel Wiggins, Liliana Napoleon, Bob Blake, Tungshi Clermont, and Dr. Suzanne Singer for an upbeat conversation on tribal clean energy initiatives. Join us on Native America Calling again tomorrow as we tackle the start of this year's football season. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a great rest of your week. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant clinical Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application deadline is October 15th at online.nmhu.edu. 
Support by Vision Maker Media, announcing their ninth biennial Vision Maker Film Festival, celebrating together. The Vision Maker Film Festival will present five weeks of American Indian, Alaska Native, and worldwide indigenous films with a new theme each week. Indigenous peoples and languages, Alaska Natives, ooh, scary, and more, all available at visionmakermedia.org, October 10th to November 11th, 2022. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.